2: Hello, you're very welcome to The
3: Tonight Show. No white smoke from the talks on emissions targets. But while coalition leaders remain hopeful of a deal, could this be a red line issue for the
4: Green Party? We're still working on things, and I'm hopeful we can get there. Today? We'll see. Not so certain yet.
3: McDonald's raises the price of the cheeseburger for the first time in 14 years. Does it herald the beginning of an era of food inflation? And later, Claire Brock brings us a special report on the older members of our society and the challenges that they face in the current climate.
5: Did you think that retirement would be like this for you? I didn't think it would be as bad as this. But this. I Do join the conversation on Twitter
3: with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight's VMTV. Now, while coalition leaders say they remain hopeful that they are edging closer to a deal on sectoral carbon emissions targets, talks have ended this evening with no resolution in sight. With the Green Party being thrown into a potentially compromising position, could this be the issue that causes them to walk? Well, in studio this evening, I'm joined by Social Democrats' TD, Jennifer Whitmore. Green Party TD, Marco Kahasig and journalist John Gibbons. But first tonight, just before we came on air, I spoke to Mixed Farmer and broadcaster Darren McCullough and I began by asking him if he felt the talks were politically treacherous.
6: Yes, and it was always going to be that way. I mean, uh, you've got a sector that is really reeling and struggling to get grips with this whole issue because it's very difficult to milk a cow or turn on a tractor and not create emissions. And so they feel like there is no uh, good uh, outcome from this and they're fighting uh, to try and minimise the damage in their heads. Do you agree with some of the rural
3: TDs this week who've said that agriculture is being you know, unfairly targeted or perhaps unfairly scapegoated in all this?
6: What I feel is that a lot of the rationale that is trotted out by farm representatives and rural politicians as to why agriculture should be given special treatment is starting to ring very hollow. For example, the idea that agriculture, Irish agriculture should be treated specially because it's helping avoid famine in North Africa just doesn't hold any water. The idea that uh, Irish agriculture if we reduce the carbon emissions from Irish agriculture, that we're simply going to export the carbon elsewhere. Well, I mean, every country has a special interest case that they could argue. So, again, I don't think that's going to put a lot of mustard long-term for Irish farmers. The idea that the rural economy will be devastated if the national herd has to be cut by 10 or 15 or even 20 percent, again, I'm not sure if that holds a lot of water because... the the herd has effectively increased by nearly 20% since quotas were abolished, so basically we'd be asked to go back to pre-2015 levels, and you know, uh, farmers weren't going out of business during that period. Um, So, I think that a lot of the reasons that are being trotted out by representatives aren't doing the sector any favours and run the risk of painting the entire sector as a kind of a uh, climate denier club
3: and you are a, a farmer yourself dara what you're saying here i imagine isn't particularly popular
6: no definitely not because uh farmers feel fearful <laughs> very right to feel fearful um, you know i'm a farmer who owns livestock and my fear is the same as other farmers, which is that we're going to have to shoulder an unfair portion of the costs of becoming uh, carbon neutral. I think every farmer, every citizen in the country aspires to get the economy to carbon neutrality. The problem is that, okay, if we want everybody, for example, to use you know electricity from renewable sources, that the cost of that transition is spread over. Every single electricity consumer. However, if you're going to ask the farming community to reduce their emissions by, say, 25 or 30%, that cost is going to fall only on the farm sector's shoulders and principally on uh, dairy farm shoulders. And so, what I think the risk is that we're going to uh, alienate and marginalize a sector of society who feels that they are paying unfair share of costs of transitioning to uh, a carbon and bear in mind the the uh, people who worked in the peat stations and for pneumonia and uh, bogs were assured they'd have a just transition that was supposed to take ten years, and uh, the peat stations were put down in less than a year. So this idea of tr- just transition has Lost a lot of credence, and I think uh, it only adds further fuel to the fire that is stoking the fears in the farm community.
3: All right, uh, Dara McCullough, uh, well, I appreciate you speaking to us this evening. That's all we. Uh, oh, sorry, I'm just going to go to my panel now. Um, Mark, no agreement uh, this evening, despite you know talks continuing all day. No breakthrough. Are they closer though?
7: In my understanding, it was a very constructive day of meetings and that we are getting closer. Um, I think it's, look, it's an extremely serious topic. Um, I I understand the fear that it's causing within the farming community. It's important that we get this right. So if it takes that extra time to get it right, Mm. to make sure that we set the sectoral ceilings across the six sectors that need to radically reduce their emissions and make sure that we have the balance between the sectors right, then it's worth putting the time into, from my point of view.
3: But the talks are going to resume tomorrow morning. Do you feel confident or are you hearing that there will be sort of an agreement before the summer break?
7: Well, I'm not on the inside of the talks, but what I've been hearing is that today was very constructive, that we've moved a lot closer in terms of finding common ground and finding agreement. I think it's important that we get this over the line and that we get it done because we've had a lot of the preparatory work in terms of climate action. We've, we've passed the Climate Act. We've set out our carbon budget for 2030, 2050, uh, excuse me, for 2030 and, and further. But it's important now that we begin acting. Um, we're and not weekly September, ideally? We have eight years in order to make our 2030 targets. So every month counts in that. And I would like to see the sectoral targets agreed so that we can really move on from this argument and really begin implementing actions.
3: Uh, Jennifer, do you feel confident now that they are going to reach agreement? And would you have any issue with them pushing this out to September, buying a bit of space, as Barry Cowan was calling for today? You know, it's important that we get it right and that we don't get hung up on a particular number or a particular time.
8: Um, I, I think that a decision needs to be made. I think the farming community need to have clarity. I think there's an awful lot of confusion and fear out there and I think that's being created primarily by, by government uh, not uh, addressing this properly. Um, and I think that, uh, that that confusion cannot be allowed to continue over the summer period. But it's um, tough. You
3: accept it's tough. It is
8: very, very tough. But what I will say is actually these sectoral uh, ranges were published eight months ago. Um, I naively had assumed that in those intervening eight months that the government was actually sitting down with their departments, working out a roadmap, sitting down with the agricultural community and saying, look, at, here's, we need to hit the 30% target. Here's how we're going to do it. Here's the support we're going to give you to help you get there. You heard from Dara earlier on, like, a lot of farmers have invested hugely in their farms because they were told to, they were encouraged to. Um, and now these farmers are going to wonder, well, what's going to happen to their farms? So they need to have clarity, And but the government supports and the measures need to be spelled out. I mean, I think it's a ridiculous situation that these negotiations are happening, and the
3: farmers have no idea what could
8: be made available to them. You know, there's The South Dems
3: position is still that the agriculture cut should be 30%, percent 30%, isn't
8: it? yeah, absolutely. And it, it's because we're listening to the science um, and we're listening to the independent advice, and that's what they are saying, that it needs to be 30%. If it's not 30%, other sectors will have to carry the burden, and I think those other sectors will not actually be able to carry that burden. You know, I think it's going to be very difficult for each sector to meet their targets. You say you're listening to the science. The main opposition haven't given a position on this yeah, you know, I I think what I find really difficult is that there's an awful lot of uh, uh, politicians at the moment, whether Fina Gale, Fianna Fáil, or indeed Sinn Féin, who are actually looking at their seats rather than looking at the science when it comes to this issue. And um, you know, they're not. It's not credible not to have a position on this. The we had the Climate Act went through the doll last year. It was it was tough. I was on the the Climate Committee at the time. We knew that very difficult decisions were going to have to be taken. Um, you know. And here we are at those difficult decisions. And Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil and Sinn Féin have all fallen at the first hurdle. So, you know, we, we need people to actually stand up and do the right thing here and not be worrying about votes. It's about getting the system right for people.
3: Are the Greens going to stand up, as Jennifer says, and, and do the right thing here? I mean, you also called for the upper end of this target, and we heard um, your chair person today, Pauline O'Reilly, saying that she wouldn't stand over you know, a target in agriculture, that was at the lower end of the scale. Would you?
4: Well,
7: it's no secret that we've been pushing as hard as we can in these talks. And But how much of a
3: red line issue? There's one thing to be pushing, there's another thing to say, yes, Look, we'll be willing to compromise. Red line, in the middle.
7: red line is great copy and great content from a media perspective, but I think it, it brings more heat than light to the debate. What we're anxious to get across the line is a cogent and ambitious climate plan that doesn't just look at agriculture in and of itself. There are six sectors that need to make uh, emissions reductions targets. That together has to add to that 51% reduction by 2030. So So to bring in language and, and as I say, to, to kind of ratchet up the heat within the debate... I don't think that is helpful. But I think I'm very aware that there are farmers at home who are, to, who are watching this. Yeah, they might be in after yeah, To silence. fair, To be
3: fair, and to be fair Mark, it's not the media ratcheting up the heat. It was Pauline O'Reilly, the Green Party senator and chairperson today. It was she who said, I wouldn't be able to stand over.
7: In, in an interview, yeah, but I would say... Well, she said it. She wasn't I forced to say it. I don't find that useful. I don't, I don't think, as I say, it makes good copy for tomorrow's okay, newspapers. OK, but would you
3: stand over it? Because the Greens were voted in on these issues. It was the main issue for the Green Party. What will you stand over?
7: Well, we have to push for climate targets across, across our economy and across our society. OK, but and Jennifer's given me a very clear position.
3: You're the Green Party, you're in mm-hmm. government, and you can't give me where your compromise is this evening or what no, figure is OK because, by you.
7: Because those talks are ongoing. Those negotiations, I, I would don't do negotiations on there. I'm not part of those neg- negotiations and those talks that are happening. The, the, the rumour today push... was that the
3: agreement looks like it'll be around 25 or 26. Is that OK for you as a no Green I have no information on what's
7: happening within that. I, you know, that, that's... I'm not you don't need the to be part, with of all due respect,
3: talks. Mark, you don't need to be part what, of the talks I need to, to see, give a position
7: on that. What I need to see is a cogent and coherent plan across all of society and across all of our economy that's going to add up to that 51% by 2030, which is written into the Climate Act. And, and that, is, that is the real goal that we're working towards. Uh,
3: John, look, it is a tough position. I do accept uh, that. It's very tough for farmers more than anybody. But should the Green Party accept um, and agree to less than 30?
9: Well, obviously, I'm not going to comment on internal uh, Green Party affairs. Uh, it's not my place. Uh, I will say it in very simple terms. 30 percent going in if you we've had this discussion about the spectrum of 22 to 30 percent. In reality, even the fact that we're pitching it in these terms, this is already acknowledging the special position of agriculture, like dramatically different to other categories, whether it's transport, energy, uh, home heating, et cetera. So we already have a special position here. And I guess what I'm seeing is 30 percent vis-a-vis what has to be done by 2030 is a bottom line position vis-à-vis the science. I would argue it's probably too low. It already places a burden into the 60s, well into the 60s for other sectors. And they're really going to struggle with this. I mean, Eamon Ryan... How much of
3: a voter issue is this, John Gibbons, do you think?
9: Well, I'm not sure that the voters are really clear about what's going on. Every time you turn on the the TV or you turn on the radio, you hear that the farmers are unhappy about this and they feel they're, they're scapegoated and so on. And... I think that is unfortunate, but I think we do need to explain why this keeps coming back to the one sector. And the reason is, number one, it is the highest emitting sector in, in our economy by some distance, number one. And number two, agriculture is the only sector that hasn't accepted its sectoral targets. Other sectors, they might have, they might complain about them, but they're basically trying to figure out how to deliver, right? And in the case, for example, of but the you, energy you sector... Hear,
3: you did hear Dara McCullough there saying that, let's say, it's energy targets... The energy targets will be spread off, spread across the whole of society. Anybody who uses energy will be involved in trying to reach those targets. When it comes to agriculture, the burden is going to be very, very heavy on one group in society, and that's farmers.
9: That's true, and I think that, in a sense, Jennifer referred to it earlier as a, if you like, a, a political failure. I, I don't think it's quite. I don't think it's quite just that. For example, it was, it was the agricultural lobby that pushed really hard. 10 10 years or so ago for the dramatic expansion of the dairy sector. And by the way, no other country in Europe has dramatically expanded its dairy sector, right? Other countries in fact are pulling back from dairy expansion because of unsolvable uh, methane related problems and unsolvable nitrogen pollution problems. Uniquely in Ireland, we've allowed our dairy herd to expand by half a million head. Uh, That's almost a 50% expansion. And that basically has painted the sector into a corner. And what we've seen is that over the last decade, emissions right across the agriculture sector have risen by 12%. And that is not the fault of a tillage farmer or of a a, a horticulturalist. This is down to our over-concentration on the most emissions-intensive sector. Um,
3: Mark, the other sectors, have they agreed their targets at this point? Or can they agree their targets at this point until we've agreed agriculture?
7: Yes, so all of the pieces have to fit together. But there has been broad agreement on the other sectoral targets. They're extremely ambitious, as John has set out. So agriculture has been acknowledged to be a special case. That's absolutely... in. in when the Climate Change Advisory Council set those ranges between 22 and 30%, that was an acknowledgement of agriculture's the, special position. But all of Party... these have to hang together to... to arrive at that 51% by 2030.
3: Are the Green Party concerned, Mark? Because we heard all the rural backbenchers out this week uh, and you could hear the concern in their voice, you know, that they're representing their constituents and that they might be in trouble if they weren't heard on the airwaves uh, representing their constituents, um, their rural constituents when it comes to these talks. Are the Green Party concerned that you too will be punished uh, in the, the next election if you don't manage to push this through, given the fact that this was such a core part of a Green Party policy?
7: I can tell you, these are my constituents as well. I'm from Waterford. It's, it, West Waterford is one of the most intensive dairying areas. I know many farmers who have borrowed heavily, uh, I know, guided I they might by have voted for you, policy. with all due respect, but in the last they're still my election. I'm talking
3: about Green Party they're voters. They're still my
7: constituents, and I, I represent my constituents, whether they voted for me or not. But absolutely, my core Green Party vote put me where I am, for climate action, this has been a government that has moved on climate action like no other previous government we 've introduced the climate act we 've brought in planning to, to, to unlock offshore wind Would you accept we have that, a Jennifer? massive retrofitting program there 's been a lot of action. And agreeing these sectoral ceilings and then starting to put them into place. Would you say the there's been
8: step. a lot of action? No, Jennifer. No, I think I think the the foundational stones are such putting by bringing in the Climate Act that was very important. However, I don't think the action is there to match it. Um, I think I think each sector is going to find it very difficult to meet the mm-hmm. targets. Um, I think the Green Party are good at getting the, the the Act in and getting the plans and policies in, but I and think the deli- I think the you, you deliver yeah, but the deliverability just isn't there. I mean, I mean, there's a a, a 28-month waiting list list, uh, for um, retrofitting. EV charging points aren't being rolled out. Uh, solar he panels aren't being rolled out week. not a single target not a single planning target planning exemptions
7: on the solar panels not,
8: but, but you're two and a half that's years been, in that's been done but these not a done. single target mark has been met um, and you know when, when you're we're talking later on about the you know cost of living and elderly people when you have people who are really yeah. struggling to heat their homes and All simple right. things like the retrofitting isn't being done that's not acceptable so it is about getting the foundational pieces in the legislation in but it's also about making sure that the deliverability of it happens All right. and and that's not the case
7: without those foundation pieces, Jennifer. All right. You have to get them done. No, 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 you actually can. We We have to
3: leave that there for now. I'm sure we will come back to uh, that topic uh, later in the week. My panel is staying with me and after the break, the end of the era for cheap food. Today, fast food chain McDonald's announced that the price of the humble cheeseburger would be increasing globally by roughly 20 cent, something that they've not done in 14 years. They say that today's pressures have meant that, like many, they've had to make tough choices about their prices. Of course, a lot of this food inflation is a knock-on effect of the war in Ukraine. And earlier, I spoke to our news correspondent, Sergio Olmos, who's in Odessa in Ukraine, where they're attempting to resume the export of grain from the war torn country.
10: That's right. There are three ports that are included in the deal uh, to provide safe passage through the Black Sea, uh, where they will be inspected by uh, Turkish officials under this deal with U.N., Turkey, Russia and Ukraine. Of course, they are separate deals mirroring each other. Uh, Russia and Ukraine are not having a direct dealing. These three ports will begin resuming, uh, trying to export some of the grain that's sitting in Ukraine. Uh, There's about 20 million tons sitting in Ukrainian silos. It's not been able to be exported since the start of the Russian invasion. They've been blocking the Black Sea, and uh, the uh, Ukraine officials today uh, have been uh, beginning the work of prepping those ships. The corridor opened today, uh, but I was at a port uh, just outside of Odessa in Chernomorsk, and no ships left. They're still planning the routes out. Uh, It is an incredibly dangerous journey since some of the uh, Black Sea is mined uh, by the Ukrainian armed forces in an attempt to repel any kind of amphibious assault from Russia trying to invade Odessa.
3: Yeah, and you mentioned Russia there. I'm just wondering how confident people are that Russia will um, stand by their side of the deal?
10: Right. Well, less than 24 hours after they signed the deal, they struck a port here in Odessa. and which to worldwide condemnation uh, from Western leaders uh, today, the Prime Minister of uh, Poland said that uh, that uh, there, there's no faith that uh, Russia will hold up its end of the deal. Uh, we have seen uh, this kind of behavior from Russia before. Uh, there's been humanitarian corridors set up, especially during uh, uh, the siege of Mariupol, uh, where the UN Gen- uh, General Secretary uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres came to Kiev to try to broker a deal for a humanitarian corridor. Uh, missile strikes came into Kyiv while. Antonio Guterres was visiting in, in other humanitarian corridors, Ukraine has blamed Russia for either firing on civilians in those cases or setting up their own parallel humanitarian corridors leading to Russia. So Ukraine, uh, UKRAINE officials rather, uh, do not have a lot of faith that Russia will comply with this deal. They are uh, still going forward, though. The work was continuing today on the port. They are trying to export this grain, in part to ease some of that global uh, food crisis that, that's pushing some people into hunger, but uh, also it, it is revenue for Ukraine. There's about 10 $10 billion dollars worth of revenue uh, if they can export this grain.
3: How important is this supply route to global food supplies?
10: It's, it's incredibly important. Ukraine is one of the top suppliers of grain worldwide, it is the largest supplier of sunf- uh, sunflower so- uh, seeds. Um, it, it, and, you know, Ukraine is up there with Russia, the United States, France uh, in terms of its grain exports. Uh, worldwide we've seen a surge in, wool, in food prices. Uh in part because of this Russian naval blockade that has thrown uh, 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 futures for the, for grain out of whack. Uh, the UN has put that in in a different terms, the human cost of what this has uh, uh, put people through. The UN says that 47 million people have been thrown into acute hunger, and some countries, especially in East Africa, are uh, threatening, uh, they're on the brink there of, of real famine. So it is a very situ- serious situation worldwide, uh, this grain shipment, 20 million tons now sitting in silos with more with this year's harvest Uh, would uh, the estimate uh, you know the analysts believe ease some of that global food crisis
3: well we all do hope so Sergio almost in Odessa we will leave it there thank you so Mark, it might do something uh, for those on the Horn of Africa, uh, and that is absolutely to be welcomed. But in terms of food inflation here in Ireland, it's unlikely to have any immediate or significant impact.
7: It will have an impact. We, the feed-through of energy prices in particular is what's, what's affecting our food prices here in the purchase of chemical nitrogen, etc. But I, I have to say I object to the link at the top when we're talking about a McDonald's cheeseburger. W- we are facing unprecedented famine conditions in the Horn of Africa, and it's not for the want of a McDonald's cheeseburger that those people are dying. Ukraine plays yeah, but a that massive doesn't role mean, in terms uh, of the World We absolutely acknowledge program. that on the programme, Mark,
3: uh, on this programme time and time again. We have covered um, the drought and the starvation over mm. there repeatedly on the Tonight Show, but it doesn't take away from the fact that there are people really struggling here in Ireland and actually when the price of cheap food goes up, it impacts them directly.
7: Absolutely, and what you're seeing from Putin is a weaponisation of human misery. And that's, that's happening in the form of energy here in Europe. So the energy prices, which absolutely feed through into people's, uh, into people's pockets and in the price of food.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey.
2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
7: Uh, here in Ireland and elsewhere across Europe. But we're also seeing that weaponization of human misery through food uh, across the Horn of Africa, across the Middle East. Uh, Ukraine supplies something like 50% of the world food programme's grain supplies. That's going to have an acute effect, as I said, across the Middle East and particularly in the Horn of Africa where we've seen a collapse of an agrarian society which is, which is down to climate change. Uh, John, and
3: the change in the in the in their weather patterns. Uh, John, we had um, the CEO of Unilever in, in Ireland last week. They own things like Hellman's mayonnaise and HB ice cream, uh, and he said the impact of the war in Ukraine and what's happening there hasn't actually been reflected in food prices yet. There's more of a lag.
9: Yeah, I think that's the case. Uh, we're, we're we're certainly going to see it, and I think again for for context, it's really important. You know, pe- people here in Ireland, some people are struggling hard with with. Uh, prices as they rise but if we if we look further afield there are many countries now where people are spending between 50 and 60% of their entire disposable income just on food so we see for example we've had in egypt food price inflation this year of 24% that is pushing people not into destitution but into famine conditions and we're seeing this and by the way this of course is not just Ukraine it's you know you do hear this Ukraine reprise now and of course Ukraine has made everything worse but last year globally we had 770 million people experiencing hunger either sporadically or continuously.
3: We also are seeing the impacts of the heat waves around the world and the drought aren't we on things like maize and, and sunflower and soybean, and that's all still to come.
9: That's entirely right. And earlier this year, for example, there was extreme heat conditions experienced in Pakistan and India, really severe, just before the monsoon broke. This is so severe that it has greatly impacted on their wheat And rice production programs. What that means is rather than being able to export their surplus they too are likely to become importers and this is the squeeze. It is important as well to say that only 10% of the total global grain production is actually exported. Most countries keep their grain production to feed their own populations. so the export production is much more vulnerable than people think.
3: Do you think uh, Jennifer we were living in an era of cheap food here in Ireland? I think what's what's really been shown over the
8: last uh, six months or so, since what's happened in Ukraine, is that we have we're very very uh, reliant um, on global uh, supply, um, and we don't have a lot of resilience been built into our own system. And I think when we were talking earlier on about. Uh, you know, the reforms that are needed in agriculture, and we're talking about climate change. I think this is just another illustration of what needs to happen. So we need to reform agriculture. We need to ensure that we are a lot more resilient so that when things So that we import less happen, of
3: our food and export ab- less of Absolutely,
8: absolutely. So, I mean, at the moment, um, you know, flour, we, we would import uh, all our flour. We, we have very few mills here, uh, so we're very reliant uh, on uh, imports for that. We import 75 tonnes of potatoes... Uh, something like forty or you know forty thousand tons of um, uh, onions, sixty thousand tons of apples. So these things that we could actually produce here, we don't because we have focused on, and the agriculture industry is focused on dairy and cattle. And so we need to have a complete relook at what we can produce here, what we need here. And I think... But would
3: that ultimately impact the price? If the price of the food that we're talking about now is, you know, the increases are due to energy prices increases, we wouldn't have control over that. The war in the Ukraine, drought, heat waves. Well, I
8: mean, if, if, if you're actually managing it on a more local level, so if you're doing it on a national level, you know, it would it would be a lot more controllable. Um, and, you know, hopefully at the same time, we would be dealing with all our energy issues and, and having renewable energy. So it, it's about building that resilience in and making sure that... Actually, that the food that we rely on, that we can actually produce it here. So that we're, you know, any shocks, any global shocks that, that we could...
3: But the, I suppose the argument, John, will always be, you know, it'll be more expensive. If we produce everything we need here, it ultimately becomes more expensive. We do it the way we do it because that's what's efficient.
9: Yeah, I think we've, we've seen this has been one of the fruits, if you like, of globalisation. The, the miracle of cheap produce coming from who knows where, at, at who knows what, ecological cost or indeed cost to people in other countries far far away so what we're seeing now is the ripples the consequences of this are now coming home they're spreading out and they're coming home to us i mean for to pick up jennifer's point like here in here in ireland at the moment less than 1% of our agricultural land is dedicated to horticulture mm-hmm. and that's why we're we're importing food that people eat 80% of the food on the shelves and supermarkets in ireland 80% is imported. So we have a highly export-oriented food production system which may suit the food processors but it doesn't offer domestic food security for the island of Ireland and if we encounter severe shocks, for example shocks in distribution, shocks in supply, which, which as we've seen with Ukraine and elsewhere, these are not fanciful. We could find ourselves in a situation where we have a food crisis in Ireland and the best buffer against a food crisis is domestic food security.
3: Um, Mark, these food price hikes we're looking at, how long do you think they're going to
7: last? Uh, Well, the estimates that we have in terms of inflation is that inflation will ease off next year. That's not much of a a buffer to people who are struggling with electricity prices, gas prices and food prices escalating in the shorter term. But we would be hopeful that inflation will begin to ease off next year. But so much of this is dependent on the fact that there's a land war in Europe. And as I said, energy is very much being used as a weapon in that war.
3: All right, we're going to leave it there. My thanks to John for joining us. Jennifer and Mark will be staying with us. And after the break, the struggles of our older people in an age of ever-increasing inflation. Claire Brock has a special report. CSO figures have shown us that lower-income households, in particular older people, are the ones most exposed to the surge in inflation, with some households experiencing rates of up to 10.3% up to the month of June. For many who rely on a state pension and state supports, the rise in the cost of living has left them making some difficult choices. My co-presenter, Clare Brock, went out and spoke to some of those struggling and the service providers who are doing their best to help ease the pressure.
11: So tell me, being on the state pension, Margaret, how you survive on that?
5: It's hard, because everything has gone up. And every day you go into the shop, there's something gone up. And it isn't just about 10 cents, it could be 40 or 50 cents. And tell me,
11: Margaret, what your fears are over the next few months um, with the rising cost of living that we know is going to get more challenging for so many of us. Well, you'd have
5: enough money to, to be able to pay for the things. So I'd be worried about that, you'd have an, that I'd have enough of money with the price if everything gone up. I don't want my insurance on my house to be this year. that would be well over €300. Euros. So it would be kind of always having to put a little bit away, if you can at all, in order to have that.
11: What do you think of how the government are responding now, and what would you like to see them do, Margaret, to help you? I'd say
5: to put up the pension by about at least €20. Euros. There's a, there's a lot of people out there that are worse off than myself. But still, at the same time, if they gave us... I think a, a fiver is an insult to people. They compli- t- buy anything. Emergency budget is needed. And badly needed. And very, very badly needed. I think at the time that the government woke up and said that, no, that people are in dire straits. Did you think that retirement would be like this for you? I didn't think to be like, as bad as this. I didn't think to be as bad as this now. I didn't think it would be as hard going. Right, Claire. this is our setup area where our
0: takeaway dinners are delivered from.
11: So for the people who, who, who you provide this service for, is this essentially their meal of the day? Their one meal their, of the day. This is their meal of the
0: day, and it's probably their only conversation with somebody from the outside world.
11: When they ring in the morning, they're just happy to stay on the phone, and some days it's hard to get them off. Wholesale, the cost of meat, the cost of, of, of various ingredients that you need to provide these meals has all gone up significantly, hasn't it? Yeah,
0: like our raw material, when we buy it in, from what it was to what it is now, some have gone up probably 40, 50 percent, like for mayonnaise, eggs, chicken takeaway boxes, diesel, and like we st- we're still maintaining the price at what it is for some of the old
11: people. Is there a pressure to pass it on to your customers or are you very aware that people are living in these uh, straitened times and that some people find it difficult to pay for the meals?
0: We are dealing with these people a long time and we, f- we find it very hard to increase the price on them, especially the times that that's, they're in and they're struggling to, to order every day. So we, we try to hold as best we can. Like but they are cutting back on the meals that they may be getting from you. Some are gone every second day instead of every day, and some is just a treat on a Sunday. Are
11: you seeing a level of poverty that you haven't seen before from conversations with them, from things they're telling you?
0: Like during the winter, you'd see them, you go to the house, uh, it's 12 o'clock or one o'clock, delivering their lunch, and they have an overcoat on them. Like, so obviously, there's no heating on in the house. They're keeping he- they're more clothes on to warm themselves. And it's more often, you have seen
9: it.
4: I mean, some people have a lot more than they'll ever need, but they don't know what to do with it. Other people are always looking for something and they never get it.
11: Harry, if you could tell me about the people who are using your service here, using your shop, and the struggles that they're now facing.
4: In the shops itself, people are still floating in and out, but they're not actually buying all the time. They're looking around. And they're finding it more difficult to make up their minds as to whether they will buy or whether they won't buy. People are trying to budget more so than anything else.
11: And what particular difficulties do you think older people face right now?
4: I think what the difficulty they're facing at the moment is fear of what's going to happen. They're afraid to spend as well because they don't know what's around the corner. They're afraid because they think things are going to get very expensive and they won't be able to afford anything. Do you feel older people feel embarrassed looking for help? I've seen people coming in here and in the very beginning and they'd be looking in the door for five minutes before they'd come in just to make sure there was nobody in there who would see them coming in, like you know. But now people just walk in the same as if it's an ordinary shop. So everything is going up, there's nothing coming down, so I can't blame people for being fearful of what is going to happen. You never know what's going to happen, but I can't blame them for feeling that way.
3: Uh, Claire Brock reporting there. Now, Jennifer Whitmore and Mark Kostig are still with us and we're also joined by CEO of the Senior Citizens' Parliament, Sue Shaw, and head of the Department of Medical Gerontology in Trinity College, Dublin, Dr Rose Anne Kennedy. You're both very welcome Thank to you. the programme. Uh, Mark, I was struck there by what Margaret said. I didn't think it would be this bad. I didn't think it would be this hard. Surely everybody in retirement has a right to feel comfortable in how they're living their life?
7: Yeah, absolutely. And there's no doubt this this spike of inflation has hit people on fixed incomes in particular hardest. Um, We're seeing huge spikes in energy costs. We know that. And people are making a choice about how they're heating their home. Um, And the government are also
3: making a choice about how they support these people.
7: The government is making choices on an ongoing basis and there's been significant Emergency measures, something like $2.4 has been spent in terms of reaction to this inflation crisis um, since the last budget. We're going to have to see, I think, both targeted interventions and across the the board welfare increases because people on fixed incomes are not affording to live to the standard that they deserve to live in in this society.
3: Uh, Rose, I heard in that report time and time again... This sort of fear and this anxiety about what the autumn-winter months present. Will I be able to pay a bill? What am I going to be able to afford? Can I fill my fridge? Is that what you're seeing? Is that what you're hearing on the ground?
12: So, So I'm a clinician as well as a researcher in Trinity and St James's. And my concerns are that this cohort are almost invisible when it comes to these discussions. We're talking about it now, but it's the last item on this evening's uh, uh, programme. Um, and Whereas they are, in fact, the most vulnerable and were most vulnerable during COVID... Um, and instead of now learning and harnessing the information and the the learnings from covid we seem to be almost right back to where we started again this group are one of the most vulnerable they're the group that can least afford to be cold because they just don't have the natural resources in their system to comply with being cold so that's one thing they're the group that can least afford malnutrition which is what some may well be looking at, et cetera. So I think that we need to uh, be much more aware and much more vocal about this particular cohort as a society.
3: Because there is always the assumption, isn't there, that when you get to retirement age, that perhaps you don't have the same financial pressures as other people in society. You don't perhaps have the same mortgage costs, the same rental costs, the same childcare costs, and therefore you're not feeling the squeeze to the same degree that some people are.
12: So that is an assumption. Of course, there's a fixed income uh, after retirement, and also you don't have other op- options. You have no other options. There are no opportunities. It's very difficult to re-enter the wor- workforce once someone has retired.
3: Yeah, and yet I was reading, uh, Sue, today a piece uh, in The Guardian about this new phenomenon in the UK of older people re-entering the workforce, unretiring. retiring they're calling it, over there. People not extending, but people who have actually left, but perhaps think, you know what? I can go back and work a few hours a week and I can get the extra uh, income that way. Are you seeing any of that here in Ireland?
1: Certainly, I think we would support and our members would support the right to choose. But if you're choosing to go back simply because you cannot make ends meet, then it's not really a choice. That's how we would see it. And very much if you're on a fixed income. And we've got to remember that the state pension currently offers no security of income. I might, I think Margaret referenced it there, get a fiver in the next pension. Or I might, like we've had for the past previous two years before that, no increase in the pension. And there was a spike in the cost of living then, and the pension wasn't even covering it. So there needs to be two things. In this upcoming budget, there needs to be a recognition that there is a guaranteed income. 2250, if they gave it, 2280 actually, would just about give us the spending power of last January not any further than that. It won't deliver the 23. We
3: did hear the Taoiseach, didn't we, when he's been asked by this time and time again, saying we cannot protect everybody against all of the rises. We can't bring people back to where they were last January. Everybody's going to have to take some level of a hit.
1: Clearly, Ciara, yeah, but it's interesting to note that the RSI reports are clearly saying, as are all of the good research that is showing, that increasing, targeted increases to those most experiencing poverty does not impact on inflation. It doesn't do anything to it except to make those who cannot weather the storm weather it better. Past budgets have served to, to cushion universally rather than target it. We are clearly saying that with fuel energy across the board and with income, we need to be really clear that older people are part of that targeted cohort.
3: Uh, so, how is the current cost of living crisis? How is it impacting on people's um, sorry, Rose uh, retirement plans? Well, I mean, if you have a choice with respect to retirement, um,
12: then some some are choosing not to retire. We haven't seen that... We, I run the Irish Longitudinal Study on Aging, and as yet we haven't seen this translate into, into, into the data. So these are our projections for the future. Um, uh, but but I, I would expect that people, if they have a choice, will will continue to work in some guys or other possibly part-time rather than completely give up work because at least that gives them flexibility which isn't the case once you take full retirement uh, Jennifer what is the answer to this well I think as was said earlier
8: on I mean if it, you know despite the teacher saying that, that they cannot protect everyone I think there there does need to be a prioritization of vulnerable mm-hmm. people and elderly people have to be included in that mm-hmm. um, I think the issues that they're really going to struggle this, this winter with, with heating I think that's going to be a, a major issue for them um, and I think with the measures that are coming out the social democrats have been very critical of the government in that they haven't been targeted enough in, in the measures they've brought out you know having a wholesale um, energy credit for people who even have holiday homes you know th- that was not a targeted approach so, so there were other targeted there, approach. There, in fairness there were but that, that actually that, that let up an awful lot of money, um, and the reason that it was not targeted was because it happened quickly. And five months later, it still wasn't in place. So the government has to absolutely prioritise vulnerable people, elderly people, uh, people you know at risk of food poverty. They, so do you they, agree with the
3: they... 20 euro in the pension the call from Margaret? who was in that report. Well, there. the social—I
8: mean, obviously the the cost of living is in, is increasing all the time, and I think it'll have to be revised coming up to the um, up to the budget. But we were calling for a, a 10 euro increase to the core social welfare rates because they haven't been increases sometimes. And Sue's um, sh- shaking think. her head there. But, but that was, that was a it. number of months ago it and was, was when we were actually calling for the emergency yeah. budget and I think it was really important and I think the government should have had an emergency budget at that time because people were suffering at that time. So um, just to be
3: clear, I think the impact would be greater think the budget or the pension should rise by this uh, uh, Well, we, we haven't.
8: We're, we're still, uh, I suppose, in, in discussions, and I know you've sent in submissions, and we, we have we, we, you know, So it's a, it's a matter of now of reviewing all those, so we haven't actually put a figure on it. Um, but it will be a key priority for us to actually make sure that uh, that there is a proper targeted focus on it um, and that the money is being well spent. You know, I think it's really important
3: that... Because you know, what's very clear, isn't it, Rose, is this has to be about more than just living. Are surviving yeah, you know it. it's about oh, having a quality uh, of life
12: absolutely that's and one, one thing that um, we do know is that stress and fear are really bad for health mm-hmm. um, and so this is a group that can't afford to make themselves one's self even more vulnerable from a health perspective um, to be fearful and under stress because of this at an older age is, is a shocking indictment on society
7: actually.
3: Um, Mark, a shocking indictment on society, a shocking indictment on the government.
7: Yeah, I would agree and I think there needs to be substantial increases in this next budget in social welfare payments and what I'd like to see... What oh, to put
3: across, but what do you see as a substantial increase? I would,
7: I would like to see double digits. That's 10
3: what I would, or 20? I would like to
7: see 10 and above but what we need to be moving, and Sue's referred to this, is about certainty. And we see this in the Roadmap for Social Inclusion as well. What we need to be doing is Indexed. benchmarking social yeah. welfare payments and benchmarking it against something like the, the MESL, the, the Minimal Essential Standard of mm-hmm. Living, so that people, older people, anybody who's on a fixed income, has that certainty that we're going to underpin a certain quality of life for what's a very vulnerable cohort.
3: Yeah, Sue, so, and I know you were meeting with the department today, weren't you? And you was spoke a pr- about this idea of benchmarking uh, pensions yes. against the average industrial wage. What was the reaction to that? Well, it's interesting.
1: It was the pre-budget forum. I mean, it was my, the Age Alliance a lot of age sector organisations plus carers, disability, a broad section. It's a great forum, I have to say that about the Mm -hmm. Department Department of Social Protection. But the other side of it is, very clearly, the Department of Social Protection themselves have said, we are an outlier in not benchmarking Mm -hmm. the reality of and it could be, there's been a lot of talk around it being benchmarked to 34% of the average industrial wage. So that what would, would that com- in
3: practical terms look like? You're talking
1: right? about maybe 40 quid of an increase. So that's not going to happen in this budget, but we would campaign heavily for it to be introduced over the next two years at least. But in this, there needs to be a minimum of 20. We can't go below that because it just won't match you th- last year's or this year's increase, never mind 23's increases.
3: I know you're looking, though, for increases beyond that. Aren't oh, absolutely. you? absolutely, yes, that's the increases. benchmarking. Uh, living alone allowance?
1: Well, the living alone, the living alone allowance is one thing. And yes, and there is, across the board, there's a call for the living allowance to go up by about 12, 15 euro. But one of the things I would say, the fuel allowance is crucial. Mm-hmm. And po- poverty around energy is really high. Only one third of older people receive the, living, the, fuel, the fuel allowance. And there's
3: I think there's probably a an assumption, done, isn't there, that, that more everybody do, gets that everybody it. does. Yes, if you're in receipt of a social yes. welfare payment at yes. all or you're receipt yes. of the pension, you get the fuel allowance. That's not the case. No,
1: that is not the case. And I think that needs to be... And we also need to link it to older people live in houses that are cold and damp, and the bear rating of people in the 70-75 are like the E, F and G. Yes. And we need to be really clear that whatever energy packaging we put together links to that.
3: Yeah, and yet, Mm -hmm. um, Jennifer, there is this better energy, warmer home scheme and the government did, in fairness, look at that in February of this year and reprioritised it to target older people. So they have recognised uh, that they are more than likely living in homes with a lower B or and suffering uh, from uh, yeah. cold because of yeah.
8: that. Yeah, so I suppose there's a couple of things. The difficulty there's the, 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 in that one. Yeah. yeah, so it's a short-term
3: measure, so what can happen in the
8: budget, but also in the long term, how do we actually make sure that, that older people's homes are warm and uh, and dry? And and I think the, the, the uh, retrofitting is, is something that needs to be done. There's a, nearly 10,000 people on that waiting list at the moment. Mm-hmm. This is 28 months. Uh, list. So, I mean, it's not happening quick enough for people. And there's Um, an element of
1: match funding, Jennifer, do you know what I mean, that older people can't afford and we've got to recognise that. If you're on a fixed income, there's no saving capacity. So the matched income that's required, you can't do it.
3: All right. look, we're going to have to leave it there but my thanks to Jennifer, Mark, uh, Sue, Roseanne and all of our guests tonight. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram tonight, VMTV. But from all of the late team here... Good night, take care.
2: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.